The words that I'd like to direct your attention to this morning are found in Deuteronomy. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you're going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, And that you may multiply greatly as Yahweh, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when Yahweh your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things, that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget Yahweh, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is Yahweh your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after the other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For Yahweh your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of Yahweh, your God, be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put Yahweh your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of Yahweh your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of Yahweh, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that Yahweh swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as Yahweh has promised. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that Yahweh our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might give us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And and Yahweh commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear Yahweh our God, 
for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do this commandment before Yahweh our God as he has commanded us. Again, please pray with me. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, for its clarity. Thank you for revealing yourself to us that we might know you, that we might know you as Yahweh, the self-existent one who gives life and breath and being to everything. Father, work through your word that all of us would diligently pursue your commandments and have your word upon our heart so that all of our lives would be characterized by it and no longer by the things of this world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I wanted to begin by wishing all the mothers here a happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm not sure when Mother's Day actually began in the United States, what, what prompted it, but it encourages me to think that there was a time in our country that somebody thought it was a good idea to honor mothers for their work and the sacrifices and their love. And although I'm not a mother, I lived with one for 18 years and I've watched my wife raise our four boys with its subsequent challenges. Motherhood begins with joy. We discover that we're pregnant. But quickly following that comes morning sickness, chronic physical discomfort. Mothers have to patiently endure all the annoying sounds of the toys that their friends bring them. And as children grow, mothers have to patiently discipline and endure seeing the same behavior committed again and again and again, despite multiple exhortations to stop. And this is one of the more difficult challenges in parenting, in motherhood, and that is establishing and enforcing rules, being consistent in following through what we say. And frequently, kids will ask, why do you have this rule? What is this for? What is its purpose? In fact, uh, one of my children did so this morning. And then they'll question the, the rule's wisdom and its validity. Prove to me that this is a good rule, in other words. And a mother could simply assert their authority and just say, because I said so. But a loving mother would want them to see the rationality behind the rules. They'd want them to understand why that rule is there. We want our children to trust us. And we want them to obey us because they trust us, not simply because we're their authority. And this is God's heart as well, as manifested in Deuteronomy 6. And it's in this chapter where Moses explains to Israel God's purposes behind all the commands that he gives in Scripture. And what we'll see in this passage is that it explains the reason for the commands, which is Israel's good, therefore Israel's good, the heart of the commands, what, what the essence of the commands is, that is, love for God, the need for the commands, because we're prone to wander into various idols, 
and the need for the commands to be explained because future generations will follow us and they need to understand all of these things. So let's look, first of all, at verses one through three, the reason for the commands. Notice in verse one, it begins. Now, this is the commandment. And the the commandments we'll see are the focus of this entire chapter. This whole chapter is about why the commands exist. What is their purpose? So it, it serves to answer the question that will inevitably come up. Why is our God such a stickler for rules? Why all the rules? If this God that we serve is so loving and gracious and generous and merciful, why all the rules? I mean, if he really was loving, wouldn't he just let us do what we want to do? Rules and love don't seem to fit well together. Or do they? The very point of this chapter is that they, they do fit well together. The very, the very presence of rules is an expression of love. And the very follow-through on disciplining for failing to follow those rules is also an expression of love. This is all an expression of love. And in fact, all the rules in Deuteronomy are given, as this chapter explains, so that the Israelites might fully enjoy the blessings that God wants to give to them. God just wants to bless their socks off. But in order for them to enjoy these blessings, they have to listen to his rules and obey them. And this is seen in the introductory paragraph. What Moses is trying to emphasize is that Israel gave God the commands for their good. And this emphasis is seen when you recognize how each phrase builds on the previous phrase. So look again at these verses. God commanded Moses, notice, to teach the Israelites the commandments so that they would do them in the land. So that they would possess the land. So that they would fear God. So that they would keep his commands all their life. So that their days would be prolonged. And then there's this, after verse 2, there's a sort of pause where Moses pleads with Israel, listen, please listen carefully. And he does so because he wants them to take these commands seriously. These are not throwaway verses. Listen carefully, he says, so that you will do them. So that then things will go well for you. So that you might increase in the land just as God has promised you. He's saying, do these things, listen to these things for your own good. There's very logical reasoning taking place. If you do these things, no matter how you look at it, it will work for your benefit. You do this, you listen to these commands, you, things will go well for you. In fact, the reason we have laws even today, why we elect legislators to make laws is for the good of our society. The reason we tell our children to look both ways before they cross the street is because we have their best interest in mind. And if we knew that ignoring rules would put our children in danger, how would we respond? If you knew that they were going to ignore a rule and ignoring that rule, it would put them in grave danger. What would you do? You would plead with them to listen. And that's what Moses is doing here. He's pleading with them to listen so that they would take these laws seriously so that they can enter and keep the promised land. So Moses moves on to clarify not simply the reason for the law, 
for Israel's good. But he, he clarifies what the heart of the law is, what the essence of the law is. And that's love. He explains that in verses 4 through 9. Verse 4 is well known. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. So in repeating this plea, hear, O Israel, it's the second time he's made that phrase, Moses again is grabbing their attention. He wants them to listen. You need to listen to this. Similar to as Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you, please listen and listen in order to obey. And what he pleads with them to do, in essence, is to worship God alone and to worship him with all of their being. Right? The reason they should worship him alone is because he alone is worthy of worship. That's what's meant by the phrase, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. When he says God is one, he means that God alone is the real God. There is only one true God. He's unique. There's no one like him. He alone is self-existent, self-existent and gives life and breath to everything. Everything has been created by him. And Moses declares this so solemnly to Israel because he wants to know he wants he wants he wants them to know that he knows what's in the heart of man. I mean, how prone we are to turn away from the worship of the one true God. To worship lesser things, insignificant, trivial things. We put our hope, our value, our trust in things that frequently let us down. They don't have the power or ability to satisfy us. And therefore, since God is the only one worthy of worship, we're to worship him with all of our being. He describes that in these phrases with our heart, with our soul, with our might. Heart describes the inner man, our thought life. Who we are on the inside, you can say it that way. That's our heart. Our soul refers to our life essence, our spirit. And might refers to just our volition, our strength, our power, our ability to do things. And, and that he breaks this down just to say everything about us should be overflowing with love for God. Everything in us is to treasure God. There's going to be no competitors for our affection, whether those are animate things or inanimate things. And so it's not so much about loving God more than anything else, but loving God completely and loving him alone. Loving him a hundred percent and everything else that we love comes out of a love for him. Augustine said it this way. He loves thee too little who loves anything not for thy sake. Referring to God, a person loves God too little if they love anything not for God's sake. Because the love they have for that thing is being is being taken away from God rather than coming from an overflow of love for God. And so how does one do this? How, practically speaking, how does one actually love God with all their being, with everything they are? Well, notice what he says next. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. 
If you're to love God with all your heart, his word has to be on your heart. Right? The way to love God with all your heart is to have your heart set on his word. There's no way you're going to love God if you're not if your heart isn't set on his word, if you don't know him, if you're not trusting him, if you're not following him and obeying him. And notice, if his word is on your heart, look at the consequences. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand. They shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Look at all of those things are consequential to having God's word on your heart. It's going to affect all of your life. And again, we need to see the logical flow in this passage. It starts with having God's word on your heart. And then it kind of flows outward from oneself to their family, to their house, to their city, to their country. And look at each of the consequences of having God's word on our heart. First of all, teach. He says you will teach God's word to your children. Again, if if loving God is the purpose of your life, worshiping him alone. And the way to do this is by keeping his word on your heart. Then the primary thing you would want is for your children to know and worship God as well. If you want this for yourself, you will certainly want it for them. And notice that the teaching of children will be the overflow of one's own scripture saturated heart and life. And it's logical as well that what characterizes your life is going to overflow onto what characterizes your kids, right? If you enjoy gardening, you're going to talk about gardening and your kids are going to pick up on it and they're going to at least learn to appreciate it. They might not like it the same way you like it because they're different people, but they'll, they'll understand it. They'll see its value, at least from your perspective. If you love reading, you're going to talk about books and you're going to want to teach your children to read because it's, it's who you are. And it's interesting that the word for teach here literally means to sharpen or to engrave. It carries this idea of repetitive motion. A good translation would be drill these commands into your children. Catechize your children. Make sure they understand these things. And if these commands are on your heart, they will naturally overflow repetitively to them. Children, you should hear your parents tell you the same thing again and again and again and again. Because those things are telling you they love. And they talk about what they love. But again, it's important to note who this passage is focused upon. Because it's, it's frequently misapplied by well-meaning Christians. The point of this passage is not to explain how children should be educated. The point is to explain how the word should affect parents. Neither homeschooling your children or putting your children in a Christian school will help you to obey what God is commanding here. Instead, it's going to take something far more difficult and costly to obey this than just purchasing a private education or the best Christian curriculum you can get your hands on. Because it's going to take you personally saturating yourself with Scripture 
so that it is constantly overflowing. It is constantly directing your mind, your heart, your affection, quenching worldliness and inflaming your love for God and for others. So again, this passage is not about children's education, but your education. And if you're educating yourself, you will then naturally educate your children. So it's, it's not wrong, clearly, to homeschool your children or put, give them a good Christian education at a private school. That's great, but that's just not what the primary point of the passage is. If a person does that and yet neglects the first part, they're hypocrites. They're grossly misapplying the passage. This has got to be an overflow. You do that because you, this is not about handing off that responsibility to something, somebody else. It's you through your life just overflowing from Scripture. And they catch your love for God from the choices you make, from what you talk about, what you sing about, what captures your life. They love Christ because you love Christ, not because they're told to. Not because it's a requirement in a class, but because they see the reality of Christ in you. Notice, not only will the commands overflow on your children, but they'll characterize your speech. You'll talk about them constantly. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. He's saying in all places and all times, God's word is going to be affecting you. It's going to take part... In all of your conversation, whether you're at home with your family or whether you're on a business trip. They'll be part of your sport, uh, your speech when you wake up in the morning and you're having breakfast with the family. Or in the middle of the night when you're trying to comfort a frightened child. Scripture is what's going to guide your counsel. If the word is on your heart, it's going to be a part of all you say. And I just want to... Take a chance, chance here to say this. Notice it's not going to be enough to have a, just a quiet time in order to do this. It's not going to be enough just to study even a, a passage of Scripture for hours and hours and hours. This has got to be something you hunger and devour. It's got to, it, you've got to not only want to understand God's Word, but allow God's Word to transform you. And it will It'll characterize your work. Look at this in verse 8. Tie them as a sign on your arms. This is clearly metaphorical. The point is that the law should affect everything that you set your hand to do. Everything you do, the Word of God should be instructing it. This is going to characterize how you perform at work. This is going to characterize how you spend your free time. This is going to characterize what sort of things you watch, what you listen to. The Word of God will direct you, not your fleshly impulses. Not just the rules at work. Not just the rules at school. But God's rules. So in all our labor, in all our handiwork, the law will characterize how we work. Also, it'll characterize our countenance. That's what, what he means by the, let it be as frontlets between your eyes. Again, he's being metaphorical, not literal. The Pharisees took it literally and it was goofy. But it's metaphorical. It should affect the way you look. 
If God's word is on your heart, it's going to affect your countenance. It doesn't mean you're always going to be cheerful because there's times where we should grieve. But we should be grieving because of the things that God grieves. And we should be cheerful and rejoice for the things that God rejoices in. God's word should affect our countenance, not our circumstances, is what it's saying. When people look at you, they'll notice there's a man or woman that has internalized the word of God. I mean, it's uncanny how you can go across the world or travel to another state and you, you meet somebody and you're immediately thinking, this person I think is a Christian. And it's just because and if they haven't said anything, it's just their countenance. And it becomes an easy conversation. Hey, do you go to church? Yeah, actually, I do. How'd you know? Well, I can just see. I can tell. Genuine believers stand out like a sore thumb. It reminds me of this story that B.B. Warfield once told about an army officer who went to a, a western town that was in kind of a riotous state. Think uh, Portland a couple years ago. Um, protests, people running around, craziness. And uh, this army officer was uh, walking down the street and he observed approaching him a man who also had a very uh, combined calmness and the, the man's demeanor inspired confidence, he said. And he was impressed with his bearing amid the surrounding uproar that when he passed, he actually turned around and looked back at him only to find that the stranger had actually done the very same thing. So they approached each other and the stranger uh, walked up to him and touching his chest with his forefinger, he, he asked him this question. What is the chief end of man? The officer responded to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Ah, he said, I knew you were a shorter catechism boy by the way that you looked. And the man said, well, that's just what I was thinking about you. And the point was that truth is what guided him in the midst of chaos. And they both saw it in one another. It's not enough, again, to be in the Word. The Word needs to change us, have a transformative effect. It should affect what we talk about. It should affect how we work. And it should affect even how we appear to others. But it will also characterize our homes and cities. Notice it, it has this effect of flowing out from us into the surrounding community. And it shows the Word of God has a very real impact. This is not just theoretical. This is not just an idea. It does have that impact. I mean, again, you can see it in other people. You see it in people's homes. You know a family who loves the Word of God, where the Word of God is central. You, you see it in how the kids act, how they speak. And this was God's vision for Israel. They in, if they internalized the Word, it would lead to tremendous blessing. The commands would help them both receive this blessing, but it would also help them to maintain it. Because although they were to love God with all their heart and to worship Him alone, God knew that they were going to be prone to wander. Their hearts, even though they knew the truth, their hearts still would want to be drawn back into what the peoples around them loved. And they'd know, be, God knew because of the nature of the flesh, they would be drawn to those things, to even worship idols rather than the one true God. And this is what he addresses next in verses 10 through 19. 
God gives Israel these rules not because he's trying to control them, not because he just is a stickler for rules, but because he he wants what's best for them. He knows their heart. He knows their tendency. And he knows that if they don't obey his commands, he will have to discipline them severely. And he doesn't want to destroy them. He makes that explicit. God promised he would bring them in the promised land. And not only that, he would give them everything they needed. And when, when they get these cities, these cities would come with them all the technological improvements of the time. And they would have the infrastructure and buildings to just to immediately begin commercial business. They would be given houses that were fully furnished. They would be given state-of-the-art water tanks, cisterns. So they wouldn't have to worry about establishing plumbing or irrigation, which is huge at that time. They would then have a, a prosperous agricultural region. And so all the food would be taken care of. All their water needs to be taken care of. And this would then would also provide for trade, foreign exports with other nations. So God wants to bless them and he and he's ready to bless them. But he also knows that as he pours out all these blessings upon them, the very things he gives them are prone to lead them away from him. Notice verse 12. Take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Why is, why is it that after God blesses his people immensely that they'll be most prone to forget him? Because they'll forget that these are gifts. They'll forget where these gifts came from. And they would see, well, we don't really need God anymore because we got everything we want. We're satisfied. We have no more needs. They would recognize they don't really have a dependence upon him. And it's the same for us. It's, it's no secret that it's in the times of our greatest trials where we feel our weakest and most desperate that we cry out to the Lord and we plead with him. That's when we're most devoted to prayer, when things are hard, when we feel like failures. The times when things are going well, Everything's kind of fitting into place. We're feeling successful. It's also when we tend to be the most spiritually dry. Just church and anything related to the Lord just feels like a heavy lift. God's promises begin to seem more like philosophical ideas rather than than the air that we breathe. The songs that are in our heart are the songs that are on the radio station. That you hear at the gym or at the dentist's office. It's not hymns, spiritual songs, and psalms. And their blessing would not only tempt them to forget God, but it says it would even lead them to worship other gods. Look at verse 13 and 15. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. 
Let the anger of the Lord be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. See, again, notice Moses is warning them not simply to honor, to maintain God's honor, but he, he has their best interests at heart. He doesn't want to see them destroyed. Brothers and sisters, if we ignore God's commands, we, we know the right thing to do, but we make excuses. We focus on other people's faults rather than our own faults. We justify ourselves. If we continue to do that, if we harden our heart towards the things that he commands us to do, it will destroy us. It will destroy us. This, these, are, these are God's commands. They're not something that some philosopher wrote a hundred years ago. That's why Moses pleads with them, listen. The next warning falls on the heels of the previous. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him in Massah. That, that the account of Messiah that he references is narrated back in Exodus 17 when God provided for them water out of the rock. Which was, a, which was a heartbreaking story because what it showed is they cared more for the water than they cared for God. After they had just escaped hundreds of years of slavery. They cared more about the water than they did for the Lord. And so Moses knew that as God provided for them when they entered the promised land, their lust for more would just increase. That, that discontentment would continue. In fact, it would be inflamed. And in doing so, it would lead to a testing or a doubting of Yahweh's character. And so, how would they avoid these dangers? Look at verses 17 and 19. How do you avoid idolatry? You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes as he has commanded you. And not just obey the commands, notice, but you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. So even if it's not an explicit command, you know what's right. Do what's right before God. So that it will go well with you. And you may go in and take possession of the good land. The Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out his enemies before you, as he promised. Again, God, if they diligently kept the commands, they continued to worship God, God would bless them immensely. But if they turned and began to worship the gods of the peoples around them, God is going to treat Israel just like he treated the gods that he kicked out of Israel. And God did not speak highly of the Canaanites. In his word. If you're going to be like the Canaanites, you're going to be treated like the Canaanites. So he pleads with them, obey his word. Let his word be on your heart. Let it affect everything about you. This brings us to the need for the commands to be explained. Verses 20 to 25. concludes with Moses repeating the same reason he gave the commands to pass on to their children. It also answers the question I posed at the beginning of the message. Why all these commandments? Why, why does God give us these commands? What's their purpose? Well, it's explained very clearly here. Look at verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules 
that the Lord our God has commanded you. Then you'll say to your son. This is the answer to the question. We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the Lord showed us signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt, against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in here and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. Notice to do all these statutes, not just hear him, not just listen to them, not just read them, not just study them, but to do all these statutes to fear the Lord, our God, for our good always. That he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we're careful to do all this commandment, not the ones we pick and choose, the ones we like, the ones that are easy, but all this commandment before the Lord, our God, as he has commanded us. Now, I think what, what stands out to me in, in this paragraph is how Moses actually answers that very simple question. Why do we have all these rules this is the question. Now, Moses could easily have said, well, the way to answer that question is because God told you to have all these rules and he told you to obey them. But that's not how Moses wants parents to respond. He could even answer the question, the reason you have these rules is because it's your own good. And that would be true. But that's not what he tells him to say. Moses knew that all these commands would provoke questions in children. Children love to ask questions. Children want to understand why. And they should. That's part of being made in the image of God. That they want, and we need to show them the rationality of God. And this question would provoke the most important question any child could ever ask. When a child asks, why do we have these rules? It is the most important question a child could ever ask. And so Moses says, I want to tell you exactly what you need to say so that you wouldn't miss it. I mean, such a teaching opportunity would not come every day and certainly it would not want to be missed or destroyed because it was answered wrongly. Again, this would be like one of your children coming up to you and, and asking your mom, asking you a mom, Mom, I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm so, I'm, my heart's broken over my sin. What can I do to be saved? And, and your response would simply be, just believe, okay? Now, would that be true? Yeah, I mean, theologically, that's an accurate answer. But it would totally miss the opportunity. It would be the wrong answer, not because it's wrong in its specificity, but because it's too simple. It needs to be explained. It needs to be expounded upon. That's what Moses does here. He doesn't say, this is the simple answer, but he says, tell the story. When your children ask about the rules, tell them why you have the rules. Tell them the story behind the rules. Look at this. Share what your life was like before God saved you. And how he saved you, how he brought you out of the land of slavery into this promised land. And he gave you these rules so that you might keep the promised land. Moses wants parents to tell the whole story of their salvation. So when your kids ask about rules, tell them the whole story. Not just because this is our rule and I told you to follow it and I'm your authority and God made you, made me your authority. But tell them the story of your life. 
why you love rules. Share what your life was like when you were still bound in your sin. How you thought of rules then and how your shirking of rules then led to the destruction and failure in your life. How it led to a broken heart. And then share how you were redeemed by Christ by hearing the gospel. And that now how how you love his commands, even the hard ones. And why now you also you love to follow those commands. And and share with them also the ongoing consequences of failing to obey. Why it's the commands aren't there just to get us into salvation, just to get us to Christ, but they're there to guide us even after we have Christ. The consequences of even being a believer who falls away. That they would know that rules are good in every context. They're an expression of love. Tell them what happens when Christians excuse sin and obedience seriously. Tell them about the misery that comes upon you when you have failed to obey God's rules. Be explicit. Tell them stories. Let them know this is not theoretical. This is how you live. And it's how God's designed you to live for your good and for your children's good. Help them to see it's not a system of control. It's a system of life and blessing and love. And share with them what we see in this passage. God's reason for rules is our good. And the heart of his rules, it's essentially that we would love him. And the need for rules, it's because we're prone to wander. We're prone to idolatry, which will kill us. And that's why we need to talk about the rules. That's why rules are necessary and not just necessary, but they're necessary to be explained and understood. And so think about the rules you have in your family. Think about how they reflect the word of God or if they reflect the word of God. So that when your children ask about them, they would see what God wants them to see. I want to close with an old story that expresses, expresses the impact of a faithful mother and also the, the power and influence of the word of God. A few centuries ago, there was a pious widow who lived in the northern part of England. And that, having been left to the care for her uh, seven daughters and son, she sought to train up all her children in the Lord. Which she did fairly well, except her son loved worldly company and pleasure. And eventually he found himself in, in much debt and he was forced to become a sailor and leave to pay his debts. Before he parted, departed on his ship, his mother came to him and gave him a New Testament. She engraved her name and his name on the front cover. And she entreated him to keep the book and to read it for her sake. And after he left, she never heard from him again. However, one day she happened to run into a sea captain at a party in London who told her uh, that the ship that her son had been on had been wrecked. And he also went on to say he actually knew of a boy named Charles on the ship and that that boy was so depraved and profligate a lad 
that it were a good thing if he and all like him were at the bottom of the sea. He didn't know that he was referring to this mother's son. And so she went home crushed and brokenhearted. After some years, a half-naked sailor knocked at her door asking for relief. And just having a mother's heart for sailors, her son having been once been one, she invited him in, provided a meal for him. And as the meal was being cooked, the sailor began to tell his story. He said he'd never been so dreadfully destitute as he was some years back when he and another fine young gentleman were the only individuals of the ship's crew that were saved. He says, we were cast upon desert island where after seven days that young man passed away. Poor fellow, I shall never forget it. And when he said that, tears streamed down the sailor's weather-beaten cheeks. He went on to say, the young man, he read day and night in a little book which his mother had given him and which is the only thing that he had saved. It was his companion every moment. He wept for his sins. He praised. He kissed the book. He talked of nothing but his mother and his book. And at last he gave it to me as, as an expression of thanks for the many poor services that I had done to him. There, Jack, he said, take this book and keep it and read it. And may God bless you. It's all I've got. And then he clasped my hand and died in peace. The mother looked at the sailor and she said, is all this true? The sailor said, every word of it, ma'am. And then drawing from his ragged jacket, a little book that was battered and worn out, he held it up, exclaiming, and he says, and this is the very book, too. And so she took it from his hand and she opened it up and she recognized her own handwriting, the name of her, her son and her own. And so she gazed at it and she read and she wept and she rejoiced. And then she asked the sailor, will you, will you part with this book, honest fellow? No, ma'am, was the answer. Not for any money, not for all the world. That boy gave me this book with his dying hand. And I have more than once lost all my treasure since I got it. Without losing this treasure, the value of which I hope I have learned for myself. And I will never part with it until I part with the last breath that leaves my body. Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn to treasure your word for all its benefits. Lord, we should treasure it just by its ontology, by its, its being the reality that it is your commands, your instructions, that it is perfect, perfectly wise, no flaws, no errors. Obedience will only bring about good. Lord, we could go on and on and on, the, on the value of the Word of God, but... But Father, we know just like Israel, we're prone to wander. And even times to, to harden ourselves in our wandering. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir us up again to treasure your word so that we would love you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. And in doing that, love 
one another even more than we love ourselves. And we ask that you would accomplish all these things in Christ's name. Amen.